Uh, so good morning. We are continuing our study in soteriology called the Doctrines of Grace, Calvinism. I feel like a broken record, but that's what we're doing. Uh, we have a few more weeks here. Last Sunday, we began to examine the third doctrine of grace, the L in TULIP, which stands for limited atonement. Limited atonement means that the atonement Jesus made on the cross is limited in its scope, and it applies only to those for whom God chose for salvation before the foundation of the world. It means that Jesus died to save His special people, the elect, not the actual entire world, not every literal man, woman, and child. That is what the doctrine of limited atonement teaches. And if you were with us or if you listened online, we focused on three things last Sunday. We looked at God's eternal decree, we looked at limited atonement in the Old Testament, and we really kind of emphasized the Old Testament sacrificial system, which teaches or shows limited atonement. And then lastly, the third thing we looked at was limited atonement in the New Testament. And we concluded that the scriptural evidence for limited atonement is both overwhelming and irrefutable. And yet the Arminian thinker, Arminian person insists that the atonement Jesus made at Calvary is absolutely universal and it applies to everyone unilaterally without exception. He basically says that Jesus died to save all people for all time. The atonement covers everyone. And he points to verses he thinks support his position. This morning we are going to identify and properly interpret the Arminian's go-to verses. I won't have time to deal with every verse our Arminian friends throw at limited atonement or use to bolster unlimited atonement. I won't have time to do every verse. They, they use quite a few. Uh, but I'm going to focus on the more popular ones that they cite, the ones that really their go-to. I would call them the big five. And I thought that I would be able to, uh, to do more verses, but what I didn't realize was that every time you pick up a verse, if you're going to teach a verse, you need to bring it into its context. You need to understand the original language. There's things that you have to understand. So if you had 20 of these, could you imagine? That could be 20 sermons. You could spend an entire sermon on one verse. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to do like 10 of them. And then I got to, through five of them, and I was like, I'm done. So... Um, each one, and here's the thing, we don't, we don't want to be blamed for, for what Arminians get blamed for, and what they get blamed for is bad interpretation. They just take verses at their face value and run with them. We don't want to, we don't want to get blamed for the same thing. We need to give every verse a good, solid expositional treatment in its context. Remember, the context always determines the meaning of the verse. And if you just take a verse at face value and run with it, you can make it mean just about anything you want. So we don't want to commit the same error in our interpretation. It's important that we slow down and really analyze these verses. And that's why we only have time to do five, but they are the most popular five, so I think it'll be okay. And the principles that we'll learn uh, in, in terms of interpretation, we can apply to any other verse that might be thrown at limited atonement. So you're, you're being taught this morning not just the actual meaning of these verses Arminians use, you're being taught how to interpret Scripture properly. And that's the main thing, right? 
So we're going to look at the big five. I'm going to use a really simple three-step teaching format that I think will help us. I'll identify the verse. I'll give a brief exposition of the verse in its context, and then I'll give you the meaning. So really, it's verse, exposition, slash context, meaning, okay? And I think that we need to pray for God's help before we actually get to work. Bow your heads. Father, we humble ourselves now and admit very quickly here that we are, we are finite people with minds that, that just don't process doctrinal, biblical, or even regular information very well at times. And so we pray that you give us much clarity this morning, that you illuminate our minds, that you open our ears and illuminate our minds. Help us to understand your word and just as it's intended to be understood. And we know that the majority of errors and heresies and apostasies and just mistakes, they come from not rightly interpreting and understanding the Word. And so we pray that you help us this morning to understand your Word and uh, teach us this morning from your Word. Convince us of the doctrinal clarity that is in Scripture for limited atonement. Uh, what really is at stake here is your glory because... Calvinism pushes a view of salvation that brings you maximum glory. The other view does not. And so if you make these things clear to us, we ought to, to glorify you, to understand you better and glorify you in greater measure because we are realizing what you've actually accomplished for us. And so there's a lot at stake. Your glory is at stake in these things. And so as Christians, we want to glorify you. So help us this morning to understand your word. Be glorified during this time. Open our hearts and minds. Open our eyes. We pray in Christ's matchless name. Amen. We can pick up where we left off last Sunday, right? We did three points. We can look at our fourth point. We'll only deal with the fourth point today, and that is verses used to support universal atonement, okay? Universal atonement. And the first verse we're going to look at this morning is Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. This is a verse that uh, people go to all the time in defense of unlimited atonement to support the Arminian soteriology. It says, and this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, "'For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone,' declares the Lord God, "'so turn and live.'" All right, so this was written while the Israelites were in captivity during the Babylonian exile. How many of you are familiar with that? The 70 years, that you know, the Israelites had, had committed various forms of idolatry, had given themselves over to sin, and God told them through prophets that He would send them away from the promised land to be in captivity. And now Ezekiel is writing to them during that period where they have already been exiled and removed, originally by uh, Babylon, right, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And so this was written during that time, during the Babylonian exile. Uh, and Ezekiel was essentially writing to remind the people that while they're away in captivity, they are still under the law of Moses, right? They, they are still, you're still my covenant people, Ezekiel is saying, you're still under the law of Moses, and you know what? If you go against the law of Moses, you will be punished. In fact, this is why you're in exile now. This is why you're in captivity, because you've sinned against me. And so Ezekiel, is, his entire 
prophetic letter that he writes to them. His letter, his book is, is essentially about remember who you are while you're away. You are the people of God. You're the covenant people. You're under the law of Moses. And, and just because you're away doesn't mean that God will not punish you for your breaches of the law. So that's kind of the, the broader context of Ezekiel. Now, prior to verse 32, Ezekiel describes sins that will result in a death sentence. Okay, we're, we're talking about capital punishment. According to the law of Moses, there were sins that would result in capital punishment, in physical death. Sins like adultery, those kinds of sins, idolatry. There are sins that would get you punished, but there are sins under the Mosaic law that if you committed them, you would be put to death. In fact, even our, our children could have been put to death for certain sins. If they were unruly and didn't honor their parents, they would be taken, according to the law of Moses, outside the city gates, and they would have rocks hurled at them until they weren't breathing. Can you imagine? And some of us have felt like that with our unruly children. I'm going to take you outside Modesto City Limits, and I'm going to throw rocks at you till you aren't moving. We have felt like that. But this was one of the capital punishment types of laws. There were plenty of them there that could, could get you killed. And Ezekiel lists some of them here as a warning, right, in the context before 32. If an Israelite, he says, eats upon the mountains, and that means that if you were to go up on the high places and eat food sacrificed to idols, okay, that's what it means when he says, eat upon the mountains. If, if an Israelite was to... Uh, uh, defile his neighbor's wife, oppress the poor and needy, commit robbery. F if he fails, he or she fails to restore a pledge, they don't fulfill their covenantal promises. If they lift up their eyes to idols, if they commit abomination, if they lend at interest and take a profit. So, you know, you're not supposed to loan to other Israelites and charge them uh, some kind of a profit or interest. And he says this, if, if you do this while you're away in captivity, if you do any of these things, he shall surely die and his blood will be upon himself. That's in verses 11 through 13. Ezekiel is dealing specifically with sins under the Mosaic law that result in a literal death sentence, or as I said, capital punishment. So, God, when we get to basically 32, what is he saying? Okay, we're not talking about spiritual death. We're not talking about going to hell. We're talking about committing offenses that will get you killed. We get to 32, essentially. What is it that he's saying? God takes no pleasure in putting anyone to death for their sins. He finds no joy in taking vengeance. This is what Ezekiel is saying. This is not about, about God not being willing to punish sins or, or not wanting any to perish. There's some kind of a universal atonement. Here's nothing to do with that. God is simply saying, I, I would prefer that you turn from your sins as my covenant people because I don't want to have to put you to physical death. That's the meaning of this verse. On the contrary, since God finds no joy in taking vengeance, on the contrary, He rejoices when a wicked person, what does it say in verse 21? Turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps God's statutes and does what is just and right. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Verse 21. 
So God doesn't want to put people to death for their sins. He prefers that they turn away and not be put to physical death. God does not take pleasure in putting anyone to physical death. He doesn't take pleasure in taking vengeance. Instead, He finds joy in the salvation of His people, of His people. Uh, what does it say in Luke chapter 15, verse 7? There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Why is there rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents? Because the sinner who repented is one of God's covenant people who finally came to repentance and faith. And heaven rejoices when God's people are finally saved. Verse 32 does not in any way deal with atonement, nor does it imply that the atonement is either limited or universal. The verse is not dealing with atonement. So it cannot be used to bolster limited or unlimited atonement. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It has to do with capital punishment. And it certainly does not say what the Arminian thinks it says. What does the Arminian think it, think it says? Well, because God doesn't like put people to death, obviously He wants to save everyone. That is not the meaning of the verse. Not even close. Not even close. So, so the meaning of Ezekiel 18.32 is really simple. God takes no pleasure in putting anyone to death for their sins. Okay, That, that, doesn't, that doesn't make God happy. God is not sadistical. God is not a sociopath. God does not rejoice in putting people to death. But we can't say that, well, then that must mean He wants to save everyone. It doesn't mean that. He simply does not rejoice in or take pleasure in putting people to death. So the meaning is He doesn't take pleasure in putting anyone to death. He finds no joy in taking vengeance. Okay? That's, that's not a happy moment for Him. And ultimately, what He's saying in this verse here is repentance is how an Israelite could avoid capital punishment. Okay, so that's the meaning of the verse. It doesn't have to do with atonement. It doesn't have to do with God desiring to save all people. And that's a crazy thing to think about when we talk about what God desires. I guess if He desires to save all people and they don't, get all, they don't all get saved, I guess God doesn't get what He desires. We'll talk about that a little bit more. So that first verse, it cannot be used really for limited or unlimited atonement. We could make a case for limited atonement. We could say that those who repent, the atonement covers them. Actually, it would bolster the opposite of what the Arminian says. But we're not going to go there because the verse doesn't deal with atonement. It's not a verse that deals with universe. It doesn't deal with salvation. It doesn't deal with spiritual salvation. It, God is just telling His people, look, I don't rejoice in... I, think of it as a good parent. Do you rejoice when you have to spank your child? If you do, you got problems and you need to get into some counseling with the elders. How many of you have said right before spanking your child, I don't like to do this, I don't want to do this, but you forced me to do it, Right? That's a good parent, and God is a good parent, and He's dealing with His covenant people. I don't want to have to strike you down in death. I would prefer that you repent and turn away from your sin and follow my laws. You're my covenant people. It doesn't have anything to do with atonement, nothing to do with any of that. So it can't be used for that, but they use it all day. Okay, so the next verse is one that we're much more familiar with, John 3.16. That's probably the most widely used verse, right? We had to do it. We had to do it. I mean, if they're going to hold it up at football games, I guess we need to give it a good treatment. <laughs> right? I, I would think that of the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, we've already dealt with one. That one's pretty simple. That's why it got a small treatment. It was easy. 
I would think that this one is probably the most misunderstood verse in the group and maybe one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. What appears to be one of the simplest verses in the Bible is probably one of the most profound and deep verses in the Bible. And you will see how. So John 3.16, it's used all the time. Look, 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 he loved the world. He wants to save the whole world, right? That's what they say. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so uh, contextually and expositionally, Jesus was speaking to a Pharisee, right? A religious leader named Nicodemus. This happened at night. That's why we say dumb things like, this was Nick at night. And some people speculate as to why it was at night. You know, well, he was trying to hide from the other Pharisees and all that. Well, I don't think that's true because Nicodemus at one point said, we believe you are a teacher who has God because you couldn't do the thing. So this, that's not the right way to look at it. And some say darkness means spiritual darkness. That's dumb. Jesus was speaking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. What does he tell Nicodemus in the early part of the chapter? He told Nicodemus that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God, verse 3. It's funny because this is not a subject that Nicodemus had come to talk to him about. Nicodemus comes and tries to compliment Jesus, and then Jesus picks the subject and wants to unpack it for this guy. So Nicodemus came to ask him questions, but Jesus flipped the script. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God, verse 3. He tells him, you must be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God, verse 5. So, so entering the kingdom of God, according to Jesus here, uh, has to do with being born of water and the Spirit. Seeing it has to do with being born again, right? This is what the subject that Jesus brings up to Nicodemus. And ultimately, what Jesus was doing here is he was quoting from Ezekiel, of all places, right? We just looked at a text there. He's quoting from chapter 36, verses 24 to 27. And in that prophetic text, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, uh, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the Ezekiel text Jesus is citing from. According to that text, to be born of water means to be cleansed and purified of sin. Jesus was not saying you need to be born and have amniotic fluid around you. People say, well, the water that you're being born of in John 3 has to do with being physically born in amniotic. It has nothing to do with the amniotic fluid. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It doesn't have anything to do with being baptized. People say, look, you've got to be baptized to get saved here to see the kingdom. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has nothing to do with physical birth. It has nothing to do with baptism. The water in the text in Ezekiel and what Jesus is citing, it has to do with being cleansed and purified of sin. Water in Scripture is a symbol of purification, right? And, and that's essentially, in a way, what baptism symbolizes. Baptism doesn't purify us. The blood of Christ does. But baptism symbolizes the fact that we have been made clean by the blood of Jesus, right? So, so... Uh, to be 
Born of water means to be cleansed and purified of sin. To be born of the Spirit means to be given a new heart, a heart of flesh, and to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean to sound like the exorcist here. We are possessed by the Holy Spirit if you are in Christ. The Spirit possesses you. He is in you. This is what Ezekiel is talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now, the doctrinal term for this supernatural work that Ezekiel forecasted and prophesied that would happen and that Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, the doctrinal term for it is what? Regeneration. Regeneration. That's the doctrinal term we use for it, the theological term. Jesus was presenting regeneration to Nicodemus as the way into the kingdom of God. Why? Because Nicodemus believed that being religious and doing good works and having a little measure of faith, that combination of things would get him into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was, uh, he was really a, a kind of a type of early Roman Catholic. He was, right? He believed that works, what I do, plus a little faith, that equals the kingdom of God. That will get me in. That's what Roman Catholics believe today. That's what Nicodemus believed. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way that it works. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, pal, that is not how salvation works. It's not a combination of, of your goodness and your works and your deeds and your piety and your religion. It's not a combination of that with faith. He's telling Nicodemus, you need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit who moves like the wind, right? Verses 6 and 8, right? You can't determine where the Holy Spirit's going to come or where He's going to show up and do His work. He can't, be, he can't be premeditated. You can't plan revivals and say that people are going to get saved. The Spirit goes wherever He's supposed to go. He can't be determined. You can't even see Him. So He's saying, you need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You need to have the Spirit of God put in you. You need to be regenerated, and He moves like the wind. And also, you need to look to Me by faith as the ancient Israelites looked to the bronze serpent Moses lifted up in the desert when they were poisoned and dying, right? Verses 14 and 15 of John 3. So, so becoming part of the kingdom or entering the kingdom is a combination of things here according to Jesus. It begins with spiritual regeneration and there's a faith component. You got to look to Jesus by faith and regeneration always leads to faith. It, it's, it can't not lead to faith. And so this is essentially what he's He's telling this guy, and I want you to notice the order that's in the text. What comes first? Regeneration. I mean, what does Jesus talk about first? Being born again, right? Regeneration precedes faith. See, the Arminian thinks that you believe and then you're regenerated. Well, how can a dead person that doesn't have faith believe? We've already established this. Total depravity. Hello. So in the, the, the order here is, is very simple and very clear. You have regeneration coming before faith, right? Regeneration first appears in verse 3. You've got to be born again. It reappears in verses 7 and 8, right? And where is faith mentioned for the first time? Verse 15, okay? So you actually have an, a, a little ordo salutis here, order of salvation. You've got regeneration, and then faith and repentance would follow that. And this is exactly what Jesus is teaching this religious leader. And really what Jesus is doing is He's essentially destroying Nicodemus. He really is. 
He's destroying Nicodemus because Nicodemus was, as I said, he was convinced that his good works and, and being a Pharisee basically guaranteed his salvation. Right? I've done a lot of great things, and I, and I do believe in God. I, I think I'm going to be okay. I think the kingdom is mine, and Jesus is telling him, not even close. And, and we can see uh, his confusion and in, in, in how perplexed he was, speaking of Nicodemus. He was confounded. What does he say in verse 4? How can I be born again when I'm old? He doesn't even, he's thinking he's got to go back into his mother's womb, which is creepy. He doesn't even understand the spiritual component that, that Jesus is talking about here, right? How can I even be born again? How, how does that happen? He doesn't understand regeneration. He says, how can these things be true in verse 9? That's confoundment. I have, I have learned the religion of Israel, and it is vastly different from what you're saying here. How can what you're saying be true? And Jesus is going back to a scripture that he would have been familiar with, Ezekiel 36, right? At one point, Jesus says to him, why are you marveling at my words? You should know these things as the teacher of Israel, verses 7 and verse 10. This is the teacher of Israel. This is the senior pastor of, of, of the synagogues there, so to speak. And he doesn't even understand how regeneration works, which isn't a New Testament-only doctrine. We see it in Ezekiel. He doesn't understand. He thinks that his good deeds, he thinks that his works, he thinks that his measure of faith have secured things for him. And he's utterly confounded and marveling at Jesus' words. And I think here he's starting to fall into a bit of a depression here because when you have a religious person and you tell them that religion isn't paying any dividends, how are they going to respond to you? They're probably going to be, at bare minimum, confused, usually angry, all right? Uh, the radical Muslims out there kill people for challenging the fact that their religion is an empty demonic cult. They kill people for that. So Nicodemus isn't wanting to kill Jesus, but he's not happy. He's confounded. He's, he's, he's tweaked. He's marveling. What is he, this guy talking about? And Nicodemus becomes like the disciples after Jesus said some pretty profound things about the rich, right? What did he say? He said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 19, 24. Wow, so, so Jesus is telling Nicodemus a profound truth about how super-religious people can't get into the kingdom, and he tells his disciples later on that, hey, rich people, it's hard for them to get in too. And why is that? That's because in, in antiquity, in the old days, wealth was thought of as a sign of God's favor and salvation. If you had money, this meant that God loved you and He was going to save you. If you were broke, it meant that God had forsaken you and you were probably headed for Sheol, Hades, hell. Do we not see this mentality in Job? Do we not see it in Job? In the gospel of Job, so to speak. His friends thought he was headed for hell and God hated him because he lost all his wealth. This is a, a, a Jewish mentality. It's still there today. And guess what? We see it not only in the book of Job and throughout Scripture, we see it with Jesus' disciples too, right? The 12 men that are with him when he says, hey, it'd be easier for a camel to do this. Uh, we, we see it here with them, 
when they heard their master's words about camels and needles and, and the rich having a hard time entering the kingdom of God, what does it say? It says they were greatly astonished, kind of blown away, and they replied, well, then who can be saved? Chapter 19, verse 25, the very next verse in Matthew. They thought if rich people can't get in, because that's what we've been taught, rich people automatically get in. If poor people can't get in, because we've been told that they've been forsaken by God, who then can get in? Right? Who can enter the kingdom of God is what they're thinking. And they're thinking, I suppose nobody can. This is the mindset of the disciples. And then Jesus follows their confoundment and confusion and, and utter despair in that moment. He counters it with an incredible statement. He says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. So they're confounded. Rich people don't automatically get in. They're confounded by that reality. They don't think anyone can get saved at this point. Jesus says, ah, hold on a second. Man can't save himself, but with God, all things are possible. In the context, he's talking about salvation, right? Okay, so why am I telling you this? Because Nicodemus entered a similar state of mind when he was told that good deeds and religious piety are useless. He had the same mindset. Like the disciples, he wondered, who then can be saved? If we can't earn our way into the kingdom of God, salvation must be shut off to the world. Everyone is doomed. This is what he's thinking. This is his mindset. This is his confoundment. This is what he's pondering. And we can tell by, the, by what he says. And then Jesus does what? Just as he did with his disciples later, he counters with an incredible statement in John 3.16. Wait a minute, Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This was Jesus' way of saying, Nicodemus, you're wrong about salvation. God actually does have a plan. He loved the world enough to send me, His only begotten Son. And guess what? Whoever believes in me shall be saved. So verse 16 is really the crescendo here. Right? you got the context, verses 1 through 15. We get to 16. This is the crescendo. This is the moment the symphony hits that final note and it blows everyone away. That's what this is. This is the moment where, where Jesus counters Nicodemus' confusion and, and despair because his religion has been destroyed by Jesus. This is where he counters it with the gospel. Wait a minute, Nicodemus. Now, the Arminian says that the... That's the context, by the way. The Arminian says that the words love and world must mean that God loves everyone equally and that the atonement applies to all. That's how they interpret this verse. There's no context behind their interpretation. I just gave you the... the not necessarily the meaning in a sense, but the context. And here's the deal. So they say, well, look at the word love and look at the, world, the word world. And they have to mean that he loves the whole world equally and that he wants to save the entire world. He doesn't want anyone not to be saved. This is what they say. This is what they argue, right? And yet in the same exact verse, the phrase, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, actually restricts the scope of the atonement. Hmm. Only those who believe shall receive eternal life, which means the atonement applies only to them. Hmm. The verse that is used for unlimited atonement teaches limited atonement. Isn't that interesting? 
Why does this happen? Because people don't pay close enough attention to it, and they certainly don't understand the context. John 3.16 does not teach universal atonement. It teaches limited atonement. And we need to establish a few more important truths so that we can get to the really the deeper, true meaning of John 3.16. We're not done. There's, there's more to deal with here. We need to do a little language study here because I want you to walk out of this service today understanding what John 3.16 teaches. And I want you to, uh, to not be dissuaded in using it in your evangelism. You should. Verse 16 mentions the love of God, does it not? Of course it does. Well, guess what? The Greek word for love here is agapao, agapao. It's probably my favorite word for love. You've got eros, you've got phileo, you have uh, agape, you have agapao. Uh, those are the words for love in the Greek. And here it is agapao, which represents the deepest, deepest, most profound, most intimate love of God. It's not the brotherly love of God. It, it, it's none of that. Agapao is the deepest love of God. It is really what I would call the saving love of God. It is the saving love of God. Now, we have to ask this question. Does God love all people with agapal love? Well, no. If He did, every person would be saved and there would be no hell, right? If He loves everyone with this, this deepest, most profound love that He has, His saving love, His electing love, the love that drives His mercy, then there would be no hell in everyone. We'd have universal salvation. But it's very clear when we look at the world and understand hell and, and these sorts of things, and we understand the wrath of God and the holiness of God, and we understand that God does not love everyone in the exact same way. Now, we do have to admit, though, that God does show love to the entire world. He does. He shows it in the form of common grace. He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust, right? Matthew 5, verse 45. But He doesn't love everyone in the same way, just as you and I don't love everyone the same way, right? I love my wife, and I love my neighbor. But if I love my neighbor the same way I love my wife, I commit adultery. I don't love my wife. <laughs> she doesn't think I do. I don't love my neighbor, right? She's like, yeah, that was yesterday. I don't... Duh. I don't love my neighbor the same way I love my wife. And I am not called to love my neighbor in the same way. I'm, I'm called to love my neighbor the way I love myself. But I'm called to love my wife with a unique love, a love that kind of models the love of Christ for His church. So there's a huge distinction between how we are loving people. I, I think that we all desire to love people very deeply in these things, but we're certainly not called to love everyone in the exact same way way. I have a deep, intimate love for Rachel. I don't love any other human being the way that I love her, not even my children. In fact, if I love my children in the same way that I love my wife, and I'm not talking about the intimacy, that's gross, but it just there's such an imbalance. Some, some married couples do this. They love their kids more than they love their spouse, and that creates hell on earth in that marriage. I have to love Christ more than anyone and I have to nextly love my wife more than any other human being. And she has to do the same thing for me. And it is not easy, at least for her to love me that way, because I'm a hard person to love. I don't love any other human being the way that I love her, not even my children. 
Who does God love with a deep, intimate, saving love? Who does He love? Who does He love with agapal love? Well, first of all, agapal love is represented wherever we, wherever we see the Father loving the Son. So He loves Jesus, His Son, with agapal love, the deepest, most pure affection. He loves Him. But guess what? Of all the people in the world, He loves His people, the elect, with His agapal saving love. Not everyone. He loves the bride of Christ with agapal love, just as you love your spouse or you try to with the agapal love. And this is represented in a multitude of verses. I'll just give you a few. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. In love, agapal, that's the translation. He predestined us, who? The elect, because that's who Paul is writing to, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He loved his people before the foundations of the world with agapal love and elected them, appointed them to salvation. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love, agapal, for us, who? The elect, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Is that not probably one of the greatest expressions of God's love toward His elect, toward His people, sending His Son, His perfect Son, to bear our sin and die for us? It is. I can't think of a greater example. We see it in Hebrews 12.6, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves, agapal, and listen, and chastises every son whom He receives, every adopted son and daughter. This agapal love is reserved and pointed at God's elect, His people, His treasure, Jesus' bride. So that's the meaning of love in John 3. It's not some kind of a universal, well, I love everyone and I hope somebody does something with this Jesus thing. It's not that. It's the farthest thing in the world from that. It's agapal. Verse 16, we see the word world, right? The Greek word for world, and this is important, is cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. It sounds like uh, uh, we think of the cosmos, but it's pronounced a little different, cosmos. And it appears throughout the New Testament, and it can refer to many different things. It has many different meanings. It doesn't always just mean like world in a universal sense. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24, cosmos is used to describe the entire universe, right? The entire universe in, in John 13, 1 and in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it is used to describe the earth, the actual planet. In John chapter 12, verse 31, it is used to describe the world system, right? That's the evil world system that Satan oversees and manipulates and utilizes. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it is used to describe the entire human race. There's a a broader application of the word world or cosmos or cosmos there. In John 15, 18, it is used to describe all unbelievers. In Romans chapter 11, verse 12, it is used to describe Gentiles. That would be non-Jewish people, like the world of Gentiles, so to speak. And in John, now listen carefully. In John chapter 1, verse 29, in John chapter 3, verse 16, in John chapter 3, verse 17, in John chapter 6, verse 33, in John chapter 12, verse 47, 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, cosmos or cosmos is used to describe the elect, believers only, believers only. So, when we're looking at John 3.16, we're talking about the agapal love, the deepest, saving, most profound love that God has for the world, cosmos, the world of His people, the world of believers. Lastly, verse 16 mentions whoever believes in Him. Well, what did we learn from Acts chapter 13, verse 48? Who will believe in Jesus Christ? Those who have been appointed to eternal life, the elect. Okay, so here are the facts. God loves His people alone with agapal love. The word world is often used to describe the world of believers, the elect. As in verse 16, the elect will believe the gospel because they alone have been appointed to eternal life, appointed to faith. And we have to keep these facts in mind as we interpret John 3.16 and every other passage that deals with salvation. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture, okay? John 3.16 is specifically referring to the special love God has for His people who are in the world, whom He sent Jesus to die for and save, and who will believe and receive eternal life. That is your meaning of John 3.16. Now, we mustn't forget the context either. It is placed in the midst of a conversation on regeneration, which is the initial contact point where the Holy Spirit changes the heart and prepares the elect for the gifts of repentance and faith. So, John 3.16 may appear to be universal, and we should certainly use it in our evangelism because it's so simple. It, it just, when you read it out loud, it's, it sounds so simple. But as we can see, it has a deeper, more profound meaning. It is more than an evangelistic invitation. It is a covenant promise. Here is the, here is the meaning, okay? God will save His people who are in the world through His only begotten Son, they shall believe and receive eternal life. That is your broader meaning of John 3.16. doesn't mean what the Arminian tries to make it mean. But I can understand why they do, because at face value, it sure seems to mean what it sounds like it means. But it is, it is so far beyond just some, hey, let's hold this up at a if I'm out there in the football stadium and I see somebody hold that up, I'm like, that's a covenant promise. Not just an invitation for people to believe. Now, listen. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in the native language. He would have understood all the nuance. He would have understood the meaning of cosmos. He would have understood the meaning of agapal. When Jesus said love, He said agapal. He didn't say love. That's English. Nicodemus heard what Jesus was saying. And, and you know what? And what he heard was a covenant promise, not just an invitation, not just a, a message of hope because your religion has failed you, but here's the antidote. Not just that, but that God is actually going to save His people because He loves them and He sent me. This is what Nicodemus heard. If he had been exposed to today's version of John 3.16, 
through some mainstream preacher, he would have been elated instead of destroyed, wouldn't he have? Oh, God loves you, Nicodemus, just as you are. You're so precious to the Lord. Jesus came to die for everybody, including you. Just pray this simple prayer and sign this little card, and you'll have eternal life. Maybe you ought to think about getting baptized. That is not what Nicodemus heard. He heard not only an invitation. He heard the message of the gospel, an invitation. He heard a covenant promise. He heard a covenant promise. That is your meaning of John 3.16. Remember that and don't forget it. Next verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this one's used all the time uh, against limited atonement. In verses 1 and 2, Paul urged... We're talking context here. In verses 1 and 2, right before this part here, Paul urged Timothy to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people. And then he lists who, you know, for like kings and all who are in high positions and also for other believers because it's important that all believers lead peaceful, quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. There's your immediate context. The context shows that Paul was referring to all types of people, not all literal people, all types of people, because he urged Timothy to pray for all types of people, including kings and leaders and other Christians. Why? Why would, why would he encourage him to pray for all types of people here? Because God is saving all types of people, people from every tribe and tongue. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And you know, this is really instructional to Timothy. We should pray for all types, especially leadership. Instead, we like to curse him and talk smack about Biden and all that. We should be praying for that man before he falls down another flight of stairs. If God, now listen, if God desires all people, everybody to be saved, like the Arminian says, then, then God doesn't get what He desires because not all people will be saved. Right? They pull from this verse here. You can see the wording in the English. It's probably not the best wording. He desires all people to be saved. And the Arminian says, look, He desires all people to be saved. He doesn't have any knowledge of the context. But think about that for a moment. I pointed to it a minute ago. If God desires all people to get saved, to be saved, and they don't get saved, then that means God doesn't get what He desires, right? Right? This would mean that God is, is, is neither omnipotent, all-powerful, nor is He absolutely sovereign because He cannot secure for Himself what He desires. He becomes a puny, helpless little deity like the stone and wooden idols of the ancient pagans. But you see, the Bible teaches that God always gets what He desires. He always gets what He wants. He's never robbed of anything. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, we read this one last week. This is the eternal counsel or decree of God. I make known the, the end from the beginning, from ancient times. Uh, what is still to come, right? He's talking about, I, I, I've made known everything. There's a future that's coming. I make these things known. I'm the one that laid it all out. And he says this, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please, which means that God gets everything he desires. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, all, 
all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing, God does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what have you done? What is Daniel saying here through his wonderful little verse? God gets what He desires. Here's our meaning here of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Timothy was urged, and this one goes quick, right? This one doesn't take as much work as John 3.16. Timothy was urged to pray for all types of people because God desires to save all types of people, even kings and leaders who persecute Christians, and God, God will succeed in fulfilling His desire because God always gets what He desires. That's the meaning. That's the literal meaning of this verse. <laughs> it doesn't have to do with universal... Unlimited atonement has nothing to do with it. It doesn't even really speak to atonement at all here. So, when you see anything where God is desiring of something, understand that He always gets what He desires at some point, always. And if He desired for all people to be saved, think of it logically, then they will be saved because God is never not, He never attains, He, he never not attains or accomplishes what He wants. That's a good way to look at this verse, but the context obliterates the idea of a universal salvation because he's just talking about, hey, pray for everyone. Why? Because God is saving every type of person, even the ones who, are, who put you in jail, even the ones who persecute you, even the ones who locked up that, that poor pastor up in uh, Alberta or wherever it was, right? He's saving all types of people from every tribe and tongue, so we should pray for all types of people. God is desiring to save people from every tribe and tongue, and He will accomplish His desire because the church is very diverse. That's the meaning. It doesn't mean anything more. Another one here, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This is one that they always go to. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, this is used all the time. Peter wrote his epistle or this epistle to believers, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to the apostles. Chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 15, he exhorts his readers to confirm their calling and election unto salvation by testing themselves to see if they have the qualities of true Christians. You know, just because you're elect and you realize that doesn't mean that you shouldn't test yourself. If you have a lifestyle that doesn't line up with a Christian, you ought to test yourself and find that out and make the necessary adjustments. The elect don't get some kind of a free pass. They have to live out the faith and they have to honor God with their bodies and all this. And that's essentially what he's saying here. Test yourselves to make sure that your election and salvation is true. We should always test ourselves in that. And then in verses uh, chapter 1, verses one through, uh, 16 through 21, Peter reminds his readers, these elect people, these Christians who have faith, he reminds them of the prophetic word the apostles received and shared with them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, he warns them against false teachers, and that's really the thrust of the whole epistle. He warns them against false teachers who will what? Secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying... Now listen to this even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. That's chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to give you a little exposition of the meaning of bought here because everyone says, look, he bought everybody, even the false teachers. Hold on, back the horse up here. Being bought does not refer to atonement. It has nothing to do with an atonement. These false teachers were not bought with the blood of Christ. They were not atoned for. The term bought refers to Israel's deliverance from Egyptian captivity. 
the false teachers were Jewish, which means they, like their Jewish ancestors, had been bought and delivered from slavery in Egypt. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, He delivered the entire nation, including the false prophets, the Israelite false prophets. No Jew was left behind. He bought and delivered them all. All future generations of Israelites have been equally bought and delivered because they are the descendants of those who were originally bought and delivered out of that bondage and slavery. All post-exilic Jews have been bought and delivered by default. That's all the Jews that came after the exile. And I'm not talking about the Babylonian exile. I'm talking about the exile out of the Exodus is what I'm talking about. Even the false prophets and false teachers were brought out of that slavery. The false teachers Peter wrote about here had been bought out of Egyptian slavery with all Jews, in a sense, right, because they're the descendants of those who were bought out, but they were denying their master who bought them out of that slavery. How? By spreading destructive heresies and leading, quote, many to follow their sensuality, unquote, verse 2. That's the meaning of bought. They were bought out of the slavery. It doesn't have to do with atonement. So the Arminians, sorry. In the rest of chapter 2, Peter compares and contrasts the false teachers of his day with the false prophets of old in an effort to warn these Christians. It's like he's saying, look, the guys that were around teaching falsely during the Exodus, they're around today just as false teachers in the church. He talks about the destruction that will come upon these, these deceivers. They will what? Be cast into hell like the angels that sinned against the Lord. That's in chapter 2, verse 4. In chapter 3, Peter offers these believers hope in the midst of their battle against false teachers. Uh, they were growing impatient and beginning to wonder if Christ would actually return. Why? Because the false teachers were scoffing at the second advent. They were saying things like, where is the promise of His coming? Uh, you should abandon this line of thinking, guys. The, things are going to continue on just as they always have. That's in chapter 3, verse 4. The false teachers were undermining and eroding the second advent, and these battered Christians were starting to believe them. And then we come to verse 9. Peter is reminding these brothers and sisters that God is not slack or slow in fulfilling His promises, namely the promise of the second advent, Christ's return. Instead, God is patient, especially toward His people. If God were to send Christ prematurely, then many of the elect would be lost, namely those who have not yet been physically born and those who have not yet been regenerated and brought to faith in Christ. If Peter is teaching them, if Christ comes too soon... There's going to be a lot of people that God has elected to salvation that will never exist and never meet that salvation. There will be people even in your congregation that He has not yet regenerated that will not experience the salvation that He has planned for them. I, he is saying God cannot send Jesus too soon. I know you want Him to come back. I know the false teachers are horrible and you're crying out for Jesus to come back. But you must understand God is not slack in fulfilling His promise. He will send Jesus at the right time. This is exactly what He's teaching these battered believers here. If, if God were to, to send Christ prematurely, then many of the elect would be lost, namely those who have not been born yet, or, and you say, well, how can they be lost if they haven't been born? I don't know, that's in God's mind. Or those who have not been regenerated and brought to faith. If Christ comes too soon, 
then God's purpose and election will not stand. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Christ must return at the precise moment, not too soon, not too late, in order for God's plan and purposes to work out perfectly. When the timing is right, God will send Jesus Christ, and what will happen? All Israel will be saved. That is the entire elect from all time. All of them will be gathered in. That's the true Israel, is Gentiles and Jews, all of them believing, all of them being elect. All of them will come in when Christ comes back at the appointed time. Not one elect person will be lost. Romans chapter 11, verse 26. What is the meaning of, of, of the verse? <laughs> it's not universal atonement. God is not slow in fulfilling His promises. That's the primary meaning. He's not slack. He will meet His end of the deal. And He is patient. And He will not send Christ prematurely. Why? Because He is not wishing that any of the elect, any of His people should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is the meaning. That is the contextual meaning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. This is, this is probably one of the more challenging ones. Uh, it says, he is the, speaking of Christ, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Whoa, how do we deal with that? That sounds like universal. That's, that verse is actually dealing with atonement, and it sounds very universal, doesn't it? Back the horse up. The epistle was written to believers, chapter 2, verse 1, to encourage them to stand firm against a new tide of false teaching called docetism. Docetism was an early form of Gnosticism, which is a heresy that emphasizes spiritual things over physical things. In the end, docetism and Gnosticism deny the incarnation of Christ, and they ultimately deny the atonement of Christ. And they, very sadly, not only do they not deny those saving truths, really, but they also encourage people to sin like crazy. Why? Because our physical bodies really don't matter. They're, they're insignificant. What matters is the soul. And when you sin, it has no impact on the soul. That's funny because God says in the Old Testament, the, sin, the soul that sins dies. <laughs> But the Gnostics and Docetists literally believe that, hey, physical matter doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is spiritual things. And so if your physical matter doesn't matter, then you can do whatever you want with your physical matter. Sin like crazy. Get drunk all the time. Fornicate. Do whatever you want. It makes no difference. What matters is that your soul is secure in Christ. This is literal teaching that was going around that John is addressing in this first epistle. He's dealing with Docetism. That's what he's dealing with here. And this is why John defended the incarnation in chapter 1, verse 1, where he described how he and the other apostles saw Christ with their eyes and touched Him with their hands. You're saying that Jesus didn't come in bodily form? We hung out with the guy for three years. What are you talking about, you crazy docetists? And this is why he talked about walking in the light in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. True Christians, the elect, the people of God, those who believe in Jesus, they walk in the light. They don't walk in sin and darkness any longer. They used to. They don't do that anymore. And the docetists were saying that, that sin is irrelevant because physical matter is irrelevant. And this is why John wrote this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. After reminding his readers that everyone sins at the end of chapter 1, John tells these believers that he is writing to inform them of this, to remind them of this, so that they do not commit the sin of the docetists. What is that sin? It is the sin of self-deception, not believing that you're a sinner and that you actually sin. He is writing to remind them of that. Don't fall into the docetist trap of not sin kills, sin destroys. You need to remember this. Uh, we see that in chapter 2, verses 1a. Docetism, unfortunately, is still around today because there are people in the world who do not think they sin. <laughs> they blame others, don't they? Well, I didn't do anything wrong. It's everyone else's fault. Or they blame their environment or they blame their circumstances, right? When a person refuses to acknowledge their sin and take responsibility for it, they are being a docetist, but that's a whole other sermon, right? And there's a great many Christians who act more like docetists because they're trying to pin their sin on everyone else. In chapter 2, verse B, uh, 1b, John tells these Christians that if they have sinned, they haven't, if they, you know, if you've fallen into the docetism, guys, if you don't think that you're a sinner any longer, if you've committed that sin, he's telling them, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And now we come to chapter 2, verse 2, our verse. John declares that the advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins, right? That's the first thing he says. It's really two parts. Propitiation is a biblical term that means appeasement. It means to appease. Christ dealt with our sins on the cross and appease the wrath of God so that God is no longer angry or wrathful toward those who believe, right? That is propitiation. That's what propitiation means. Now listen carefully. When John said our, he was, right? He says he's the propitiation for our sins. He was referring to himself and he was referring to his readers, right? Now, I want you to think about this. We are all gathered together in this room. If I say our, who am I referring to? Myself and everyone in this room, right? I'm not referring to uh, our people who didn't make it to church today. I'm not referring to the guy walking down the sidewalk who's going to the smoke shop to get some goodies. I'm not talking about the guy who's going to get not a good sandwich from Subway. I'm not talking about the guy who's buying wheels and tires. I'm not talking about every Christian. I am talking about us specifically. I'm talking about our context. This is where language studies are important, word studies. Half the errors we make is that we don't understand the word our or world or any of that in Scripture. So, so when I say our, I'm talking about me, I'm talking about you. And guess what? This is precisely what John means here. He was referring to himself and to the believers he initially wrote to, to his immediate audience. John was encouraging this little group who were under attack by the docetists. He wants them to know that if they had fallen into sin, they have an advocate who atoned for their sins and propitiated the wrath of God so that they have nothing to fear. Come to the throne of grace freely. You've sinned, Christian. That's okay. You have, you have an advocate. You have a propitiator. Jesus has made a way. Remember that. Come to Him and confess your sins. That's all He's saying here. 
But he also says that the advocate not only propitiated for their sins, he propitiated for the sins of the world. Now, does the term whole world include everyone, like the Arminian says? No, it cannot. The Bible teaches over and over that the atonement is limited in its scope, right? It only applies to the elect. It only applies to those who will believe. Now, here's what's interesting. John's statement in chapter 2, verse 2 is paralleled with John the Baptist's declaration in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, that's another verse the Arminians use. In this particular text, the word world, cosmos, refers to the elect just as it does in John 3.16. People from every tribe and tongue scattered throughout the world, right? The Lamb of God will take away those people's sins. That's why he's come. That's why he's, what he's going to do. Now, the meaning of cosmos in John chapter 129 is identical in 1 John 2, 2. Keep in mind that we have the same author here. John, right, the apostle, wrote the gospel that bears his name, and he also wrote these epistles, right, his three epistles, and he also was the human instrument behind Revelation. I want you to understand something. There is doctrinal continuity in John's writings he speaks of limited atonement in his gospel, chapter 6, verse 39, chapter 10, verse 11, chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, chapter 10, verse 29, chapter 11, verse 52, chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 17, verse 9, chapter 17, verse 24. Every one of those verses, he's hitting limited atonement. And what does that say? He's the author of the gospel and wrote about limited atonement. He's the author of this epistle. What am I telling you? He is, there's doctrinal continuity. He's not going to contradict himself in his epistle. He's not going to write something contrary to what has already been recorded in the gospel. His writings, there is doctrinal continuity. Here is the meaning of this precious verse. John is saying that Jesus Christ, the advocate and propitiator, not only takes away his sins and the sins of, of, of the Christians that he wrote to, right, those who were under attack by the docetists, but He takes away the sins of all believers throughout the earth. Christ propitiated for John. He propitiated for uh, John's immediate audience, those immediate readers, those guys who first read this thing. And He propitiated for all God's children who were all over the world. That, my friends, is the meaning of the verse. Pretty crazy. We've had to cover a lot. Let's conclude. Of the passages we looked at, I know it's taken some time, but these are more like lectures, so bear with me. I hope you're not bored with this. Of the passages we looked at this morning, only two actually point to atonement, right? John 3.16, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. The context, the original language, and the clear teachings of Scripture in other places do not support unlimited atonement in either of those two passages. It just doesn't. In fact, the context, the original language, and the clear teachings that we find in other, in other scriptures, together they support the exact opposite, limited atonement. Limited atonement. The verses that Arminians use to tout unlimited atonement actually preach limited atonement. Isn't that funny how that works? 
And when we analyze the other passages in the same manner, right, we looked at the context, we looked at the original language in some of them, we compared and contrasted to what other scripture says. When we, when we interpreted those other passages in the same manner, we discovered the same reality. None of them support unlimited atonement, not one. If we were to take all the other verses Arminians use to support unlimited atonement and apply the exact same interpretational method, we will arrive at the exact same conclusion. The Bible does not teach unlimited atonement. It teaches limited atonement, not unlimited, limited. Christ died for His people and for His people alone, and His people are the ones who will believe. They are the whosoever. They are the all who will come to me. Now, why do the vast majority of American evangelicals arrive at unbiblical conclusions regarding the atonement? Why? Why do they do this? Well, we could point to Arminianism, obviously. It's had a profound effect on many churches, has it not? But I believe the influence of Arminianism is only partly to blame. And I want to say this with all the love in my heart, but I think the main reason why they arrive and why people arrive and why we and even me at times, why we arrive at wrong conclusions is because of laziness. It's because of laziness. Christians today are lazy. They are. They barely read their Bibles, let alone study them. They are nothing like the Bereans of Paul's day who studied Scripture and tested everything they heard against Scripture, Acts 17, verse 11. Where are the Bereans of our day? Laziness, in my humble opinion, and I think in God's opinion, according to His Word, He talks about it in Ecclesiastes, talks about it in Proverbs, it's a serious sin. It's a serious sin. It leads to biblical ignorance. And those who are ignorant of God's word become tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, Ephesians 4.15. In response to the Bible's use of the words all and world and our, right? Because those are the words that trigger people to think, look, he died for everybody. In response to really the misuse of those words, A.W. Pink said something very good. I think it's in your bulletin. He says, it may be asked, has God used words to confuse and confound those who read the scriptures? We answer, no. Nor has he written his word for lazy people who are too dilatory or too busy with the things of this world or like Martha, so much occupied with serving, they have no time and no heart to search and study holy writ. He, he just hit the nail on the head. He hit the nail on the head. Spiritual apathy and laziness and complacency leads to biblical ignorance, which leads us to believe all of the crap we're taught from pulpits these days. There's a lot of, pardon my French, crap being taught from pulpits today. A lot of crap that's not biblical. And if we're not like the Bereans and we don't know the word, we just take it on. We just take it on. And I would just simply encourage you, if we have been lazy, if we have been dilatory, which is a fancy word for slow to act, 
If we have been lazy or dilatory with the word and allowed ourselves to get sucked into the deceitful schemes that are circulated by foolish men in churches today, right? Arminianism, docetism, charismania, health and wealth, name it and claim it, prosperity, antinomianism. Do you know what antinomianism means? It means no law. It means by grace we can just do whatever we want. It's a form of docetism. I'm covered by grace so I can sin all I want. Paul said, no, heaven forbid, don't ever do that. If we have fallen into these things, we've been sucked into them because we've been lazy or dilatory, just gullible. If we have fallen in, we need to know that we have an advocate and propitiator in Jesus Christ. Yeah. He died to pay for every sin, even the sin of laziness, even the sin of complacency and apathy. Trust in Him and be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Confess your sins to Him. I say develop the discipline of personal study, set aside time and engage Scripture regularly. Don't just read Scripture, study it, get a good concordance, get a good set of commentaries. Calvin's commentaries are really good. MacArthur's commentaries are very good. And start reading the old dead guys, the, the Reformers and the Puritans, because they, there's a wellspring, of, a, a vast wellspring of wisdom there that can help you in your journey. It's really up to us. And sanctification is a synergistic thing. We're sanctified by God, but our efforts count. And we should be great students of the Bible. We should investigate. We should dive in. We should chew on the Word. We should dine on the Word. We should be nourished by the Word. We should desire the meat of truth, the meat of Scripture. This is one way. If we develop this as a discipline, this is one way we can guard ourselves against the clever, deceiving schemes of foolish men who are out there propagating and teaching unimaginable things, some worse than others. And this is not to say that Arminians aren't our brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's a great many of them who love the Lord as much as we do. They just don't understand some things here. And so we continue to pray for people and share the truth in love. Amen.